Your Royal Highness, Your Excellencies, Ambassadors, distinguished guests, officials, former officials, and attendees, particularly members of the military, we're honored to have you with us this morning. As Dr. Anthony mentioned, one of the uh, most important issues we are focusing on today is our cooperation with the Arab world and how U.S. policymakers can implement policies with respect to that. This morning, of course, our focus is going to be on U.S. energy cooperation. But as if many of you know, our cooperation with the Arab world isn't just focused on energy. As reflected by the rest of our panels, today and tomorrow you will see U.S. defense cooperation with the Arab world, the geopolitical cooperation, of course, the finance and business cooperation, and not to be undone by the GCC cooperation with the U.S., which makes it all the more important, as Dr. Anthony mentioned, the U.S. GCC Corporate Cooperation Council that I've agreed to chair with my colleague Elizabeth Wilson, who's here in the audience as well. So in setting the stage for our panel today and our distinguished guests that we have on our panel, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the state of affairs with respect to U.S. energy today and how that might affect our relationship with the Arab world. This morning, crude oil is at $81 per barrel. Yes, you heard that right. That equivalates to $3 a gallon gasoline. I was taking my dog for a walk this morning at 5.30 in the morning, and I looked up, and I look up every morning at the gas station by my house, and I couldn't believe what I saw. But indeed, $3 for a, ga a gallon of gas. Where is the state of U.S. domestic production, what you've heard about, the shale and oil, gas, and petroleum revolution here? What about this talk of lifting the ban on exporting domestic crude oil from the United States? Do we here in the United States have the right domestic infrastructure to support the growing production of our natural resources here? What about our relationship with some of the more unstable OPEC producers, like Iraq, like Libya? And what about our long-term relationship with Iran? Where is Iran on the production levels today? And finally, while some people's favorite holiday may be coming up this Friday, Halloween, my favorite holiday follows three days later. That would be the U.S. elections. And what effect will those elections have on a variety of U.S. policy issues with respect to energy, like the approval of the Keystone Pipeline, like the regulatory environment that allows more domestic production, not only in the LNG, but in the fracking area? What effects will that have on U.S.-Arab energy cooperation, particularly if the NOPEC legislation starts to move through the House and Senate? And what about the state of renewable energy and alternative? So with us today, our distinguished panel, I will introduce them very quickly and then have them one-on-one -on -one give comments. And then I allow all of you and invite all of you for the note cards on your table to please write your questions down so we might address those questions in the end. We have about one hour for this panel. 
Um, so we're going to try to quickly have the panel make some comments and then take a lot of your questions. First will be Dr. Paul Sullivan, and we're honored to have Dr. Sullivan on many of our panel discussions at the National Council. He's a professor of economics, National Defense University, an adjunct professor, professor of security studies at Georgetown, and an adjunct senior fellow for future global resource threats at the Federation of American Scientists. Following Dr. Sullivan, we'll have Mr. Jamie Webster, who's the Senior Director and Head of Market Intelligence for IHS Energy. He's the former project developer for Beacon Energy. Following Mr. Webster will be Dr. Sarah Vakshori. She is the President of SVP Energy International and, most interestingly, the author of The Marketing and Sale of Iranian Export Crude Since the Islamic Revolution. Following Dr. Vakshori will be Tamara Assaid, a fellow lawyer, um, and who is presently the Director of Strategic Infrastructure Advocacy for CGLA. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Anas El-Haji, who's the Chief Economist for NGP Energy Capital Management. He's a former professor of economics at University of Oklahoma, and Colorado School of Mines. So, Dr. Sullivan, we'll begin with you. Thank you. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning. I have to give a, a caveat before I give any talks, at least for the meanwhile. These opinions are mine alone, do not represent those of the National Defense University, Georgetown, or any other organization I might be associated with. So now I can get myself into trouble and it won't be connected with any institution. When people think about shale revolution, they usually think of the oil revolution first. The biggest changes will likely happen in natural gas. There's approximately 7.3 quadrillion cubic feet of shale gas in the world. That's quadrillion, what we know about so far. And these are just from geological studies. There could be a lot more there. In the oil and gas business, one of the main things that you should take away is you don't know until you know. Meaning you need the appraisal wells, you need the sonograms, and you actually need to produce the stuff before you can figure out what's going to be there. Quadrillion BTU. Now in the United States, our imported gas has been going way down. We hardly import anything from the Middle East anymore in LNG. It used to be quite a bit. We're exporting more LNG. We're importing mostly from Canada, but those imports have gone down. We're now increasingly exporting to Canada from the Marcellus field. We're increasingly exporting to Mexico from the fields in Texas, in Oklahoma, in Louisiana. The U.S. market has been pretty much closed off for some time for the Arab exporters. The Arab exporters should also consider the following. With all that shale gas in the ground, more competition is coming around the bend. It may take a while, 5 to 10, possibly 15 years, but you can look at what's going to be happening in places like Australia, Indonesia, Malaysia, East Africa, Russia, 
the biggest source of conventional natural gas, has massive shale gas reserves. And then there's Canada and also the United States, and we will be exporting LNG. I'll be visiting the Chenier facility in Texas in two weeks. So does this mean that we should turn our backs on the region? Absolutely not. One of the main reasons for that is virtual energy. How many things do we import from China, South Korea, Japan, the EU, which rely on natural gas and oil from the Middle East, the GCC in particular, quite a lot? When someone asks me about whether the Iran sanctions are effective, I ask them whether they have anything that they have used from China. And I point out that that oil from Iran was used to produce that product in China. Therefore, these sanctions are hardly working on that angle. Another part of this reason why we should not turn from the region, meaning lose interest in it, of course, we have terrorism, we have alliances in the region, but also gets back to something that was mentioned a little bit earlier by our distinguished guest from Qatar. And that is that Qatar is 25% of the LNG market in the world. The north field off of Qatar is the largest single conventional gas field in the world. It shares this gas field with, of all countries, Iran. There is no border gas flows. I think we might have an interesting future here. All of Qatar's LNG exports come out of one facility, Ras Lafan. This is very important to consider. The entire world LNG market is pretty much determined by a critical facility at the tip of a small country in an unstable part of the world, 25%. Qatar has also made a considerable number of enemies along the way by its funding of certain groups, support of, let's say, the Morsi administration in Egypt, having offices for people who collect money for various groups in the country. It has also joined the anti-ISIS coalition, which, by the way, I really shouldn't be calling it ISIS. The usual term I use is psychopaths and sociopaths in Iraq and Syria. <laughs> this has nothing to do with Islam and a lot to do with psychopathy and sociopathy. These actions, this joining up, has brought considerable risk to this island. And we should all be concerned about the security of Qatar and Ras Lafan. The biggest market for LNG is Asia. Asia is a growing place. It relies heavily on Qatari LNG from Ras Lafan. Most of the gas coming out of Ras Lafan travels in carriers called QMAX which one ship contains enough natural gas for 75,000 American households for an entire year. If anything happens to one of these ships, the LNG market is thrown off. 
See, we're focusing a little bit too much on oil. If we're going to focus on the Suez Canal, much of the increase in traffic through the Suez Canal is actually Qatari LNG heading for Europe. About 45% of the LNG imports to Europe come from Qatar. About 85% of the LNG imports to India come from Qatar. About 35% of the LNG imports to Japan come from Qatar. About 35% of the LNG imports to South Korea come from Qatar. And it all comes from Ras Lafan. Ras Lafan is one of the Achilles heels of the world LNG markets and hence for the world energy markets. Because if the world LNG markets are disturbed, the world pipe gas markets will be disturbed, oil markets will be disturbed, coal markets will be disturbed. One of the most vulnerable states is Japan, relies tremendously on LNG from Qatar. It is the largest importer of LNG in the world. Qatar is the largest exporter. Japan had to shut down all of its nuclear power plants between 2011 and 2012. Its import of LNG has gone through the roof. It really doesn't have an alternative. If Ras Lafon or a certain number of the 363 LNG carriers are not in service, that's it. 363 LNG carriers in the world, that's it. These are numbers you have to think about. Major LNG export facilities, maybe a dozen or so in the entire world. A lot less than for oil. Now let us consider what would happen if something happens. Now I work at the National Defense University. A lot of what the Defense Department does, a lot of what this city does is think about the what ifs. The what ifs could lead to the price of natural gas for Asia going from its now, let's say, 12 to 15 dollars per million BTU to 25 to 30. If it goes to 25 to 30, we have a recession in Asia. We also have inflation in Asia. Anyone remember stagflation during the 1980s and the 1970s? That is something we could be facing. Qatar is an extremely important state in an unstable part of the world with a very complicated and sometimes incomprehensible foreign policy. The closest producer to Qatar in volume is Malaysia with less than one-third of Qatar's production. Then we have Australia, Indonesia, Nigeria, and our major source of imported LNG, Trinidad. And then you have Algeria, that's the top seven. If you added the next five after Qatar, it would add up to just a little bit over Qatar's LNG exports. Again, it gives you another sense of the concentration of the market. If Raslafan or some of these ships are knocked out even for a few days, the world will be thrown into turmoil. The regions that would be hit hardest would be Asia and Europe. And the effect in the United States would be long term. This would also disturb tanker and container traffic 
throughout the world because many countries would have to adjust to not having this LNG coming out of Qatar. For Europe, there are massive pipeline systems connecting the EU and other parts of Europe to Russia, Norway, Libya, Algeria, but there isn't enough capacity to make up the shocks. There is excess capacity in Rotterdam to bring in more LNG ships. It's only at about 11% capacity, but there aren't enough LNG liquefaction plants in the world, and there aren't enough ships to move it around to adjust to what might happen. Electricity, petrochemicals, and many other markets that need natural gas would also feel the price shocks. There could be factory shutdowns in Asia and Europe as companies scramble for alternative sources of energy. The debate about exporting LNG from the US, which me as a security person and as an economist seems like a no-brainer, we just do it, that's it, and investment will adjust to price increases, this will end. Our allies in Europe and Asia, most particularly Japan, will have to focus on greater diversity of energy supply. LNG facilities, pipelines, and large LNG carriers take a long time to build. The energy industry often faces very quick shocks, but it can take a long time to adjust to them. I can see there's one fellow in the room who spent 18 years working on a refinery project. Think about how long it could take to build an LNG facility with the lawyers and the NGOs trying to stop it in Canada and the United States. It would have to be fast-tracked. The immediate and medium-term shocks would continue possibly unabated for a long time. Does anyone in the room have any further doubts about the importance of LNG, the importance of Qatar, the importance of energy diversification, and the importance of thinking about the what-ifs that we all have to consider. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Sullivan. That was a great overview. And now we'll hear from Mr. Jamie Webster of IHS Energy. Thank you very much uh, for having me here today. I have the distinct pleasure of, uh, in my role, of being able to cycle between uh, Washington policymakers, uh, OPEC, and uh, producers around the world. I'll actually be at the OPEC meeting on our uh, U.S. Thanksgiving this year, so I will have a turkey club, I guess, in the in the lounge. Um, I want to talk with you today a little bit about uh, the ongoing, and I think at the thin edge of a wedge in terms of uh, what OPEC and shale oil mean with each other over the next several years. Uh, in 2012 and 2013, prices were remarkably stable, perhaps one of the most stable prices we've had in many, many years. But those who had not been paying attention to the market didn't perhaps realize just how much tension actually existed. The only reason we did not go to prices well above the high levels we saw in 2008 when we reached prices of $147 is actually first because of uh, strongly increased production out of Saudi Arabia and then from 2012 on actually significant production out of the United States. 
these last couple of months where uh, we've moved away from the risks associated with Daesh, uh, with prices hitting $115 in uh, mid-June, and they are now, uh, now international prices are now around $85. Uh, that was caused because of a move from geopolitics and geopolitical risk, which certainly still exists and is arguably even higher than it was uh, a couple of years ago, and moving towards fundamentals, which is Libya production went from in June of around 150,000 barrels a day to now around 800,000, barrels a day. Uh, this, this has been enough to really to bring down the price uh, quite significantly, which has uh, also caused earlier this month uh, Saudi Arabia in their official selling prices slashed prices quite dramatically uh, into Asia, of which many, uh, many in the press and others uh, immediately, because everybody likes excitement, said that the Saudis were starting a price war and were ready to do battle with, uh, depending on which article you read, just about everybody that you could imagine, from the Russians to the U.S. Uh, to those in Asia to everyone else within the Gulf. Um, I have the distinct pleasure of actually working with a gentleman who actually used to, to work in the OSP program and so I had him do an, an independent analysis on how he would have adjusted them and he actually would have made them slightly more discounted uh, than they were uh, in this last one. So actually, uh, they, they were actually very much market driven. This was not something that was, that was put out in terms of a, some sort of market share battle uh, or anything like that. But this also has brought forth a lot of discussions and you've seen it in the last couple of years as the U.S. has really changed its relationship with its producers. Uh, Nigerian oil into the United States used to be around 1.1 million barrels a day. We now receive approximately zero. Uh, and instead we, we export gasoline and diesel and all sorts of refined products from our refineries to Nigeria, supplying them between 40 and 60 percent of their uh, refined product import. It's dramatically changed a lot of the flows that you've seen uh, around the world going forward. And so there's been a lot of discussions within the United States. Well, this is great. This is, this is the death of OPEC. This is, uh, we can finally get rid of Saudi oil and, and uh, uh, Algerian oil and Nigerian oil out of, out of the United States. And this will be really good um, for us. Unfortunately, what a lot of these, uh, uh, these, these sort of analysts uh, fail to remember is that oil is a global market. Uh, and so even if we actually didn't receive any oil in the United States from an OPEC country, China and Asia does. And so if those supplies were cut off, uh, the price of oil globally would rise quite dramatically and end up impacting the United States uh, quite a bit. So we actually really uh, need those volumes to, uh, to be there. And so OPEC and OPEC producers, Middle East producers, have a valuable role going forward in terms of that production whether or not it continues to come here to the United States, which I actually expect it will um, in quite some quantity. Uh, the other is that, uh, that there's a lot of discussions on uh, you know, the, the latest round, I think this is the 15th or 16th attempt at a NOPEC uh, uh, legislation. I think a lot of people actually fail to remember what the role of OPEC is that's actually needed. Uh, it's been said before that if OPEC didn't exist, you would have to invent it, and it actually has been invented uh, in the past. I'll, I'll do a quick, uh, we'll call it a parlor game that I, that I run with all of my energy nerd friends. So uh, right now oil prices are around $85. I'll give you a couple, of, a couple of points here. $147 was the highest we reached in August of 2008. Just a few months later we were around $37. Earlier this summer we were $115. Ten years ago or so we were at $20, $30. 
Uh, what, uh, just think this through in your head, what do you think that the price of oil was in today's dollars, so I don't have to, I won't push you back that far, uh, say 18 months before Edwin Drake struck oil in Pennsylvania. So just think through what it would be in today's sort of dollars. A lot of times when I work this with people, they, they, the normal guesses range between 50 and $200 with a couple of outliers and a couple dollars up to, you know, 500 or so. The real answer is $2,500. Uh, that's what it was. Edwin Drake then sold his first barrel of oil for $680 because his, his uh, drill, his well, actually doubled global production of oil. Uh, 18 months later, global prices for oil in today's dollars, again, were around $3. Uh, and so you had this huge volatility that was really, you know, while it was great for a short period of time for consumers as prices started to go down, then the price started to rise quite dramatically again as a number of producers uh, had to go offline and shut in uh, and stop producing. Uh, since that time, you've had various types of OPEC, as it were. So you had, you had Rockefeller, you had the Seven Sisters, you had the uh, European Petroleum Union, you had the Texas Railroad Commission, and for the last 40 years, we've had OPEC. If you end up displacing OPEC, which is entirely possible because of how the shale oil actually has this greater responsiveness than you've seen in any other sort of production of the last couple of decades, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything is all great and we're going to have nice, cheap, low prices. We, uh, producers constantly want as the highest price they can get. Consumers want the lowest price they can get, but both sides actually want very stable prices. Uh, so you're actually moving to a time with this discussion between shale oil and OPEC and those larger producers. This isn't suddenly a panacea where we're going to have much lower prices or much higher prices, but we're likely going to be moving into a time of much greater volatility. Uh, and so we need to really understand what the potential responsiveness out of uh, shale oil uh, and how that can impact and influence what the global market ends up uh, going forward. Anyway, I will uh, speak with you all in the uh, discussion. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Next, we'll hear from Dr. Sarah Vakshuri. Thank you, Rhonda. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to be here at this conference, and I would like to thank the Council to invite me here and to share the company of uh, such great delegates and uh, speakers. Uh, Rhonda asked me to speak about Iran today and um, the current downward price of crude oil prices, the ongoing talk and nuclear talk of Iran with the uh, P5 plus 1 and combined with the turmoil in Iraq, to say it's a timely topic, it's masterly use of understanding. Of course, the downward trend of uh, oil is going to have a significant effect on Iran's economy, energy industry development, politics, and foreign policy, too. And um, as Jamie mentioned, Washington, D.C. never lacks uh, the discussion on policy, and many uh, start to arguing this is a price oil war and this is against Iran and Russia uh, to put more pressure on it. Some went further to say this is a Washington's pressure on Saudi to uh, lower the prices. Uh, neither do I agree with this story and uh, nor uh, the evidence is uh, terribly compelling that this is an uh, oil price uh, war or anything against Iran and Russia. Um, However, if the timely, timing, I would say the timing has been chosen so carefully that make me believe that Saudis are uh, now the master of chess. 
but I don't think uh, necessarily this is a war, and I think that this is a uh, expecting uh, market dynamics that was bound to happen sooner or later. In fact, I believe that the, this price plunge in the market that happened sooner than our expectation creates a great opportunity for both uh, consumers and producers, both conventional and non-conventional producers, to rethink their market strategies, their uh, uh, market share strategies, how to secure their uh, demand more than they can, or how to uh, fight in this current this market share fight. And um, depending on our position, of course, you're going to have different, uh, be influenced by these uh, prices differently. Uh, this current prices has created concerns for tight oil producers over their cost and profit. It's going to make an, al uh, to make an alarm for oil-dependent economies to adjust themselves with the new reality of the market and the uh, lower oil prices. Also could have a positive psychological effect on the demand side. But how does exactly affect Iran? This is the big question for me, that um, to discuss it that how the oil prices are going to affect Iran. Well, obviously, Iran is an oil economy, uh, oil-dependent economy, and lower oil prices is going to affect the economy of Iran more than uh, Iran is already hurting from the sanction its economy. And Iran, because of the sanctions and limitations on its oil export, cannot increase its export, of course, to reduce this uh, budgetary gap that uh, it has currently. Also, it's not in the interest of Iran to push for uh, controlling the prices in the next OPEC meeting to uh, suggesting the reducing the production by OPEC members because obviously maintaining the lowest and minimum uh, export uh, capacity that Iran has currently is really vital for this country. So Iran cannot really afford to reduce its production further than it is. Upon its um, appointment, Bijan Zangene, Iran's current minister, set its highest target to increase Iran's production capacity to a level of 4 million barrels a day before the pre-sanction level, and also to once again redirect Iranians' uh, focus on the share oil and gas field uh, with its country, particularly Qatar, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, Paul mentioned uh, greatly about the uh, Qatar's uh, share in the LNG market and gas market, Iran has more gas, natural gas reserves than Qatar, but Iran's share in the gas market is less than 1%. So this was the target, the main target of Iran's oil minister. However, there is a great need for significant sanction reduction for Iran to be able to increase its production capacity and export capacity because Iran needs to have access to international investment and uh, technology. And the current lower oil prices have been hurt and will reduce the domestic resources that the Iranian government was once uh, planning and counting on to put in developing its uh, energy resources. Therefore, in the light of the, oil, uh, the current um, lower oil prices, having higher export capacity and uh, production, of course, is now more vital for Iran than before. And the stakes for Tehran to reaching to an agreement with Washington and other uh, Western countries over its nuclear program, of course, is at highest uh, ever. Iran has already announced new investment regulations, Iran Petroleum Contracts, IPC, that unlike the previous one, the buyback contracts are involving the IOCs, international oil companies, in the production 
uh, process. Well, for Iran that jealously was guarding its oil production and wealth since the 1979 revolution, it's a great deal of change to offering IOCs to be involved in its production uh, process for a longer term. However, again, there is a huge need for, uh, for Iran to significant uh, reduction of sanctions. And at this time, Iran is going to have higher problem with lobbyists in Washington, D.C. that are preventing further uh, increase of oil production in the market. If Iran succeeds to reach to an agreement, complete agreement with P5 plus one, and the sanctions release on Iran, we are expecting that shortly Iran is going to ex expand its uh, production to about five to 600,000 uh, barrels uh, of oil more. It will take Iran, if it has uh, access to international investment and technology, to re increase its production to the level of four million barrels in two years. But we don't think that really Iran is going to reach for more than four million at this point because, because of the production, cap uh, the refinery capacity and the type of refineries in Iran already are not allowing this country to really produce um, more demandable products, more light and middle distillates. Also, there is a competition for gaining market share in the oil market. However, Iran has always, since 10 years ago or more, was looking for increasing its uh, natural gas production and export capacity, uh, particularly from South Pars, the share field with Qatar. And uh, Iran is going to have, in under the scenario that it, there is no sanctions on Iran, uh, gas would be the future of Iran and uh, the focus of uh, Iranian uh, energy industry to um, put more focus and attention on their natural gas production. Well, that would be it for me, and I'm looking forward to have more discussion later on. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Next, we'll hear from Tamara Essaid from CGLA. Good morning. It seems our discussion this morning has been very oil-heavy. I hope to be the voice of reason. It's a pleasure to be here today, and I promise to be as swift as possible uh, and to the point and get everyone to the much-anticipated networking session. Doing business in the Middle East is a challenge, and not just politically. The natural resources dichotomy, major energy resources against limited water resources, creates tr tremendously challenging opportunities. Challenging, but opportunities nonetheless. The Arab world is one of the least economically integrated regions, with interregional trade making up only 5 to 10 percent of total trade, and non-oil exports sitting at less than 1 percent. I'll repeat that. Non-oil exports sitting at less than 1 percent. This is problematic when the disparity between oil producing and non-oil producing countries is so vast. With over 60% of the population under the age of 25 and population expected to double every 25 years, the high unemployment rate will only increase and rapidly. This expanding generation of youth also brings with it an era of technological innovation and creative entrepreneurship. While speaking of diversifying our GDP, trade, economic portfolio, infrastructure, and energy sector as a segment of these sums, we must also discuss those dynamic minds which will be leading these efforts, the youth themselves. The rise of social media has allowed for startup integration initiatives 
and platforms for accessing a host of markets and sectors. It is now a reality for a wind power engineer in Amman to send an instant message to a solar energy, energy engineer or CEO she has never met in Abu Dhabi with project details and specs asking for real-time assistance and advice and getting an immediate response through a project facilitation program, Global VIP. The great innovations and dynamic infrastructural marketplaces that oil-producing countries have enjoyed have allowed them to be leaders, not only regionally but globally, and petroleum energy advancements have been key in allowing for this great boon and has been at the forefront of the energy discussion until now. With this great innovative leadership also comes with it a great responsibility. First and foremost, to continue leading the next generation by giving them the tools and opportunities they need to be relevant and inventive. But there too sits a great responsibility of oil producing countries to be the guiding light to the region, bringing these pioneers to the next level of energy and toward a localized, sustainable, alternative energy development. For example, the Jordan Wind Project featured on our Strategic Top 100 report for MENA in South Asia has already partnered with the UAE-based Arcology Project, Mazdar, to begin one such energy leadership collaboration. With Jordan's electricity needs expected to increase by 5% each year until 2020, such a step toward redu reducing its carbon footprint ensures both long-term energy as well as economic security. Localization is an opportunity, not a hindrance, to U.S.-Arab energy cooperation. As the U.S. itself moves toward energy independence in oil and natural gas, we see novel and exciting alternative energy projects popping up across the Middle East, showing promise of imaginative vision and sustainability. Energy independence of the United States and that of the Arab world are not mutually exclusive, on the contrary. Regardless of when the U.S. ultimately achieves its own localized energy infrastructure, Middle East energy stability will always be on the U.S. agenda. So why not contribute to the region's achievement of such stability through localization, training, educa education, and promoting dynamic alternative energy projects that will increase future economic competitiveness? It is absolutely essential for countries to emphasize the creation and support for local capacity for any long-term and systematic infrastructure project development. This is particularly true where private investment is involved and in any hopes of attracting private capital and growing a creative expert base. In the IMF's most recent report, we saw that unless we invest more globally in infrastructure, we will be looking at a decade of mediocre growth something that tomorrow's youth and our economy cannot afford. By looking at eight distinct criteria, CGLA infrastructure has created a framework for ensuring that economic competitiveness through alternative energy infrastructure development is not merely an illusory hope, but a tangible goal. If you take anything from the following criteria, the one that drives all of this is projects, great projects. Projects that redefine infrastructure and push the engineering envelope, and yes, oftentimes the financial envelope, and what contribute to overall competitiveness. The ability to present a compelling consensus on a vision for the future of a country's infrastructure with a focus on competitiveness. The ability and skills necessary for public agencies to assess project design 
engineering, finance, and performance. Public sector strategic capacity moves those projects forward and expeditiously. Long-term project performance, the quality of local engineering procurement and construction firms working in an individual mar market as local companies best understand how to navigate a country or region. Local equity capacity and finally leadership. The institutional framework involved in projects and the management of the politics and finances necessary to complete projects on time and on budget. With $4 billion of alternative energy projects featured in the Arab world just as a part of our report in just under two years, coupled with an exponentially growing youth population hungry for change and more creative than ever before, global technological innovation and energy sustainability starts as a project in just one person's imagination and has the ability to grow from vision to reality. Thank you. Thank you, Tamara. Just one more reminder to the audience, if you have your questions, this will be the final opportunity to send them up. We have some good ones already, but always welcome more. Our last speaker is Dr. Anas Al-Haji. Good morning. Given this time of the day, I think I'm going to be everything but serious. Dr. Anthony, if you think that uh, Rwanda being half Egyptian, half Iranian, is interesting, then listen to my story. Uh, I am half Syrian, half Italian. I used to say that until I heard the stereotyping by Fox News and HBO, and I stopped. I was afraid to be labeled half terrorist, half mafia. <laughs> my grandfather was diagnosed with a TB when he was 36. And doctors give him six months to live. I'm telling you this story for a reason. Because they say that God created economists to make the weathermen look good. And I'm going to prove to you that God created physicians to make economists look really good. So my grandfather was diagnosed with TB when he was 36. He was given six months to live. He died when he was 105 from an accident, not from natural causes. <laughs> when he turned 100, he decided to turn his life to a movie and a book. And in his book, he said that he witnessed 15 killings in his life, and he lived long enough to see every killer being killed. Policymakers, listen to this story. The long run is different from the short run. So if we start thinking, in the long run, will that change lives? It, it definitely changed mine. I live in northwest Dallas. My property is on the Barnett Shale. There is a shale well that is 0.7 mile away from my house. That is one kilometer away from my house and they drill horizontally under my house, they take the gas under my property, and I get a check every month. Now, why I'm telling you this? The takeaway from this is, the share revolution in the United States was not designed by policymakers. It was not the result of an energy policy or 
of foreign policy. It was the independent producers and the medium-sized companies that brought the share revolution to you. Now, where the government policy is going to work is whether we can export or not, and whether this policy is going to align the interest of everyone or just one group. The final thought is that to explain what happened in the oil market, think about an equation where you have production disruptions on one side along with demand growth, and on the other side you have all the net production additions from around the world. That includes, of course, U.S. additions, Canada's additions, and the Saudi additions. Since 2010, the market would have been balanced by the end of 2010, and it would have experienced oversupply in 2011 if it wasn't for the Arab Spring. So whatever we are experiencing today in terms of low prices, it should have happened in 2011, but on a smaller scale. But the Arab Spring delayed those events until today. So what we have today is the disruptions are getting smaller and productions continue to increase. But there is a problem. For the first time, the issue of crude quality becomes an issue. We did not have it before. Why? Because all the current surplus, which at NGP we estimate at 0.6 million barrels a day, 600,000 barrels, is light, sweet, crude. The Saudis cannot cut to balance the market because the crude, most of the crude, is sour. It was normal and logical for the Saudis to lower prices simply because they need to compensate for that quality issue. By early 2015, in the first quarter of 2015, the surplus would be about 1.5 million. It's only logical that several countries, including OPEC members and OPEC members in West Africa and North Africa to cut production because that's the only way the market can be balanced. We need to cut the light, sweet, crude to balance the market. So for those of you who are in academia and for those students who are studying their or doing their dissertation, here is an idea for you. We've been working on OPEC modeling for the last 40 years. We never paid attention to, quality of, to the quality of crude. Now, everything changed. The U.S. share revolution brought in the light, sweet crude in massive quantities that, is replaced, that replaced the imports from West Africa and North Africa, and we have that surplus. And for OPEC to balance the market, they start, to need, they start or they need to start looking at the quality of the crude. That changed all equations that we've been looking at before. Thank you. Thank you, Anas. Now I understand why you wanted to go last. Leave it to the Italian Syrian to come to Washington and tell policymakers that they are irrelevant. So thank you for that. Um, we will now spend the next 10 minutes on the Q&A. What I'll suggest is that our panelists stay seated, speak into the microphone. And I have one question for each person, I think. So why don't I start 
uh, Tamara with a question on infrastructure. One of our um, audience members wants to know in what areas in the Arab world or specifically what country has had the most success for energy infrastructure development? Well, I mean, I don't think any one country has gotten it right. Speaking to the microphone. Mike. Can you guys hear me? Thinking I could go without. I don't think any one country has gotten the infrastructure plan right. I think uh, there has been a lot of great projects and there have been a lot of great people involved. Uh, and yet the execution or perhaps the initial um, process hasn't completely been, been fulfilled. But I think we, we can all agree that we've seen plenty of really great infrastructural projects coming through uh, the GCC, uh, some coming across from North Africa, specifically Algeria, uh, has been a great example and now booming I think is Jordan uh, coming from the Levant. So I think the importance isn't to focus on which country has been the best at doing infrastructure. It's taking those resources and interregionally collaborating so as to build up infrastructurally uh, the region as a whole. Thank you. Um, Sarah, there has understandably been a lot of interest from the audience on Iran. Um, but I think one of the most interesting questions is if an agreement is struck with Iran, what are the first two energy projects that Iran might engage in that ostensibly they can't do now because of sanctions? Well, of course, um, I would say Iran has very much interest in Farzad B. Uh, and Farzad B would be one of the projects that they would put efforts. They try to attract investors in Farzad B uh, project for long. They offered even uh, production sharing during Ahmadinejad, which they were not successful still to bring Indian. Indian, on, uh, although there were uh, sanctions on investment on Iran, they announced that they are not going to give the production sharing uh, offer to Chinese, and they wanted to go. So this is this has one of the highest priorities, but particularly those projects that are going to uh, increase Iran's uh, ex uh, production capacity on the share fields. Great. Um, thank you. Paul, this question is for you. There's an um, extreme interest in renewables, which we haven't touched on that much, and the relationship between the U.S. and Arab world, and um, particularly in the areas of solar. There's also a question on nuclear. Maybe we could wrap that up, too, in the advancement of nuclear in the Arab world. Oh, you gave me the easy one. Easy. <laughs> With regard to renewables, I had an interesting visit to the UAE in Qatar, uh, Qatar Foundation in the UAE Mazdar City. And I noticed something interesting. There's a lot going on with regard to renewable technology development in the GCC. The Saudis are putting a lot of money toward that as well. The king wrote a rather big check on this. Can the United States and the GGCC cooperate on the development of renewables? Absolutely yes, and we are. ENR and the State Department, Energy and Natural Resources, could do a lot more with the Arab world to help develop that sort of interrelationship. They're doing this with China and India. I can't see why not with the Arab world. With regard to nuclear, we get into some pretty dicey prospects. Uh, the UAE has a 123 agreement with the United States. 
It's building a nuclear facility with the Koreans just southwest of Abu Dhabi. Most of that's going to be used for water desalinization, but also to produce electricity. Egypt has some idea of developing nuclear power. For some reason, that makes me slightly nervous right now. Libya, I think we should forget about that. Uh, the Moroccans are focusing very much on renewable energy. I was in a meeting with some Moroccan business persons and leaders a couple of months ago, and they're focusing a lot on solar. But with regard to this part of the world or any part of the world focusing more on renewables, they have to understand, and I'm sure they do, uh, that this is intermittent power, and there has to be a development of energy storage to make this happen right. Otherwise, the electricity system could be unstable on days with uh, not much wind. The problem with sun really doesn't exist in this part of the world. Uh, the nuclear situation and proliferation, uh, I think that would be something that would need to be worked out. But clearly the Koreans, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Russians and others are also interested in developing that in this part of the world. Great. Uh, Jamie, question for you regarding domestic U.S., particularly oil production, as U.S. consumers remain one of the largest consumers in the world. Do you think that this increase in domestic production is enabling U.S. consumers? And how do you explain, coupled with that, the lower prices at the gasoline pump in light of the geopolitical stress and turmoil going on in particularly the largest area of production today? Mm -hmm. um, well, certainly Americans are benefiting from uh, both lower prices in, in, in terms of the consumers, uh, lower gasoline prices across the board, but actually for the last several years, economically, uh, the U.S. Uh, and consumers and, and businessmen have been benefiting quite dramatically. We've got uh, royalty owners that are uh, making, getting a check every month. Uh, uh, my brother graduated with a master's degree in history and surprisingly could not find a job in anything but the energy industry, so I was, I was happy for that. Um, so there's been a, a real uh, benefit uh, uh, kind of uh, across the board. In terms of why we've switched from kind of geopolitical uh, you know, risk to the fundamentals is, is largely, for the last couple of years, it's been more about the risk, meaning, you know, will, will Iran do X or will this happen, uh, not actually impacting the actual uh, supplies or demand. What has happened since June is actually a, not a risk, but an actual volume, which is uh, Libya production coming back on uh, quite strongly. Uh, realize that, you know, for the last couple of years, we've been dealing with global outages of around three to three and a half million barrels a day. Uh, this is on a global market of around 92 million barrels a day. So that was that always represented significant downside price risk, and actually more downside price risk remains. If if Iranian barrels come back into the market, you could have prices go much lower. If uh, if Libya, which is in what in my mind is a rather unsustainable situation, and their production goes offline, uh, you could quickly see prices climb back up uh, in short order. Great. And um, finally, Dr. Al-Haji, because your expertise is in the capital management and investment area, there's a question regarding all of the LNG facilities that have applied, the applications that are in the process, and those that have been approved. Will the U.S. be able to build all those facilities, and is there the capital financing and able to support those facilities here in the U.S.? If, if we look at the LNG facilities around the world, uh, there are a couple of conclusions. The first one is they never come online on time. 
So that's the first conclusion. The average delay is about two years. Uh, we've seen many cancellations over the years. Uh, so it's typical basically to see delays and cancellations. Based on our forecast at NGP, we believe that the, uh, uh, the, world, the, world oil mar the world LNG market can handle about 5 BCF a day by 2020. Any more exports than 5 BCF a day is going to, crea is going to, to create a competition among various LNG uh, uh, exporters. Uh, so there is uh, a potential. Uh, experts do not agree on the amount that will be exported. We heard uh, numbers between 4 BCF a day and 16 BCF a day by 2020. So we'll see what number will be the correct number by 2020. Terrific. Great. Well, thank you. I'd like to thank all our panels. Interesting discussion, interesting topics, and I'm sure we'll continue those conversations. Uh,